Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bass. And thank you for listening, David. How you doing? I'm uh, leaping headlong into the year 2020. All right. Um, except for the fact that we still have Christmas cards to open from from from, from listeners. It's just a every year this happens because our, our recording schedule gets all weird. So we have yeah. Christmas cards that I wanted to uh, to to point out from a few listeners. Well, Peter Hayes sent us uh, as usual some some postcards. They're not Christmas themed, but. Uh, right. Uh, a few of them from the Seattle area. This one's of Gasoline Alley, and he said, uh, he says, David, when you got married, you mentioned how you always think of the way that Borat says my wife. I got married in September. Congratulations. Congratulations. Peter. I feel like that's what he's fishing for here. Right. I got married in September, and now I can't help but do the accent when talking about my bride. Um, yeah, it's fun, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, now I don't know if I'd say that. Oh, okay. It's not uh, fun so much as I just hate it. Because I think I got married, because I got married before Borat came out. Wow, that's and true. And so yeah. I had been using the phrase my wife, and then suddenly it's like, oh, shoot, here we go. Yeah, that's true. Between that and being married to someone named Jenny, uh, so people would say oh, sure, it in a yeah. Forrest Gump fashion, uh, between those well, I remember two. I mean, when you were first dating, you and Jenny were like peas and carrots. <laughs> um, <laughs> the other one, well, the other thing... Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the line from my brother Art though. Is it like uh, you can't swear at my fiance? <laughs> is yeah, that, yeah, yeah, is yeah, something yeah. like that. It's Ray McKinnon, right? Ray McKinnon, that, yeah. yeah. Hey, hey, you can't swear my fiance. Well, you can't marry my wife. That's a good movie. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, and then and then the actual Christmas one from Peter says, "Merry Christmas, Tyler and David." How would you feel about doing an episode in the new year about film quotability and its effect on the culture at large? What? what? <laughs> Um, Did you know that going in? No, I didn't. Oh, that's funny. No, there are so many, like, I've realized there are so many things that I say that are movie quotes that not even, like, um, uh, I don't even think, like, I don't even think people necessarily pick up on the fact that I, yeah. I'm quoting a movie when I say, like, well, there's, of all, there, uh, of, of all characters, there's two Amanda Plummer quotes from Pulp Fiction that I use constantly. Okay. Which is pretty smart. With yeah, that, like hit the right. and then uh, what is it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, I, I say those both to the point where my wife now says, "What is it?" The way I do, I don't even know if she knows that she's quoting Pulp Fiction. Not that she hasn't seen the movie; she's seen yeah. it. But I don't know if she's just doing it because I do it, or if she's also quoting Pulp Fiction. Well, and I remember this is we've known each other many years so this was early on uh you would enter a room saying if any of you fucking pigs move i'll execute every motherfucking last one of you so Uh, yeah god that's not true okay (laughs) um i'm thinking of famous lines that have been reappropriated and are firmly embedded in our cultural consciousness uh such as these are not the droids you're looking for i don't know if that's from uh say hello to my little friend uh well that one's from star wars (laughs) he introduces r2d2 and says say hello to my little friend uh we're gonna need a bigger boat thing they did on give a damn yeah i got a feeling we're not in kansas anymore um yeah they've been incorporated so thank you peter for those it reminds me of um now one of the all-time great episodes of the best show which has been going for nearly 20 years and uh, does a three-hour show every week and so there are lots and lots of great moments but tom did an episode of favorite movie quotes people called in and they and mostly it was it was the people who like get Tom's sense of humor, which is the best show sense of humor. So like instead of lines like this, it would be lines like Charles Grodin going, I hate our dog in Beethoven. <laughs> that, that is the kind of thing that he likes. But then one person called up and said that one of his favorite lines was from Scarface. And it was, 
get ready to meet my little friend, <laughs> which then became like a decade long running joke on the best show. Um, uh, now I will say there is, uh, not even a whole line, but it's a, it's a repeated phrase, um, that you and I will often reference and I incorporate, I occasionally, and I try, I don't call attention to it, but I will occasionally use the, fr- the term in one of my reviews. Okay. And then, uh, in the documentary that's uh, coming up in February, uh, I incorporate the phrase into that as well. Okay. And I essentially leave it as a little Easter egg for you, okay. uh, David, no, do you know what it is? Uh, no. Oh, is it, um, Wait, is it relentlessly pedestrian? <laughs> no, no, that's no. not from a movie. That's right. a whole other inside joke. Yeah. Is it that the actors acquitted themselves admirably? No, that's a good one. I yeah. have used that in the past. No, it's yeah. uh, the phrase crusty, but benign. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Which is from network. Uh, and you and I have referenced it before. And now I, I incorporate it because like it's, it's a phrase that is just stuck in my head and it's not that I use it and it's also, accidentally. It's not any less common a type than it was in network. If anything, it's become uh, more prevalent. All right, let's move on. to. So thank you, Peter. We're going to move on to um, Ian. Okay. Uh, he sent us a nice, oh, very nice Christmas card. Oh, yes. People skiing on it. Um, oh, this is, uh, this is very nice. All right. Uh, it's their time to have a Merry Christmas. Wishing you another year of good podcasting and happy viewing. Your friend Ian from Boston. Thank All you, right. Ian from Boston. And finally, that is a nice card. Yeah. I like it. Well, speaking, I mean, not that I want to, I don't want to put Ian to shame here, but we got our annual Christmas card from our friend and listener and sometimes contributor to the website, Sarah. Oh yes, yes. Also from Boston. That's weird. We got two Bostons. Or hmm. uh, uh, well, Ian and Sarah should, should hang out. Anyway, she has this. She makes these little oh, yes. Christmas cards that uh, are so wonderful. Uh, this year, she says, um, <laughs> "She says I was almost going to say like in the past she's like made ornaments for us, but I didn't want to say like I didn't want to sound like I was saying like come on, Sarah, get it yeah. together. Like, where's the ornament? Like, the card's like, is, nice. is everything the, okay? Uh, but no, she said starts with sorry I didn't get my act together enough t- uh, uh, this year to send a homemade gift, but I hope you both have a nice holiday season. Looking forward to more great podcasts in 2020. Thank you, Sarah. We are looking forward to." more great uh ornaments next year there we go yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean you. whether the podcast is great might depend <laughs> on uh, those ornaments <laughs> yes no um thank you very much uh to peter and to ian and to sarah and to everyone who has listened to the, to the show um whether you've been listening for coming up on 13 years yeah. or whether you've been listening for i don't know 13 days yeah. <laughs> um yeah, uh, or I don't know how long we've been, how long this episode is, but maybe thirteen minutes. Yeah, not quite. It feels like it. Okay, yeah, I'm sure it feels like it to our guest who has not been allowed to speak yet. Um, he seems pretty, uh, pretty well occupied with his computer, nerd. <laughs> uh, that was a fun gesture. Okay, um, all right. So uh, I think this, and of course, listeners, uh, the PO box, yes, is on the website and we do take uh we're happy to take letters uh cash gift cards or 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 presents you know really whatever you want to send us we will gladly accept yeah yeah the po box is on the website um but uh um well speaking of you know the reason for the season you know uh, i want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds and a variety of stylish stylish Mm. stylish styles and colorful colors they look great they sound great Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives you know what I was listening to this week what Tyler I know recently you and I talked about I, I don't know if you ever got around to listening to it 
but talked about the Kanye West Jesus is King yeah. album. No, I know. I, everyone, all my Christian friends say I should. I was like, I didn't really like him before. It feels actually um, less likely I would like him now. Well, it's not as good, but here's what, uh, so you've heard about his Sunday services. Mm-hmm. So there's the Sunday service choir. Yeah. They have an album. I think he produced it and wrote the songs, but yeah. it's a, it's an actual like choir album that I listened to, uh, a couple of times. It's way better than Kanye's <laughs> album. It's actually really, really good. Yeah. Um, so I listened to the Sunday service choir album and it sounded great on my tweaked audio.com earbuds. Uh, they're available at a low, low price at tweaked audio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please, I implore you go to tweaked and use the offer code pretension. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Tyler? Yes? What are we doing here? Well, we are, uh, I'd say at this point, firmly into our uh, end of the year coverage. Uh, last week, we talked about uh, our, yeah. our, what is it? What Individual achievements. I was going to say independent achievements. It's like, no, no, no. they were required other people to be around. <laughs> uh, but yeah, individual achievements. Uh, and so now we... Uh, now know, we're doing the episode that normally would kick off the coverage. That's but be, true. Because of yeah. the early Oscars. We talked about this last week. Because of the early Oscars, which I hope... I hope it goes back. I, I can't remember. Did we talk about this part on Mike? Like, because they, cl- they currently have, they announced the 2021 yeah. date like years ago, and it's the last Sunday in February, yeah. which I would much prefer to go back to that. Um, but I guess we'll see. It probably depends on. Right. Uh, if the ratings, ratings are, yeah. if there's no improvement in the ratings, I could see them going back. But if it, if it gets like any kind of bump, then that means they'll, they'll probably keep it where it is. Um, it's too bad. I don't like it. Uh, it's too early but it's our fault for uh, lashing ourselves to the Oscar schedule for our end of year coverage. <laughs> that is true. Um, anyway, but yeah, the, the it's become a, a tradition. We, uh, we, we uh, uh, observe tradition demonstrably observe tradition to a fault. Yeah. Uh, I've had a super tension uh, and our, and our, and our more, one of our more recent traditions is having, Battleship Retention editor at large, Scott Nye, on at the first episode of the year to talk about his favorite films of the previous year. Scott, welcome back to the show. Happy New Year, guys. Happy New Year. And to you as well. Oh, thank you. How was your, uh, how was your New Year? Uh, I didn't do anything because I was flying back from Portland seeing family. Uh, I flew back on New Year's Eve, landed around 9 p.m., got home around 10. So Julie and I just went to get some ramen. You went to get some ramen? Some ramen, yeah. Was the ramen place open until midnight? Oh, the ramen place is open until like 3 a.m. So did you observe the New Year at the ramen place? Uh, I think we slightly missed it. We observed New Year's at home. Oh. Hmm. I didn't feel like going out after coming on a plane ride. I guess. Is is New Year's Eve a, a busy travel day? Um, yeah. No, I mean, it wasn't bad, actually. Okay. The plane was pretty full. The plane was pretty rowdy. A lot of drinking going on. Sure. Oh, okay. Yeah. But you didn't get any, um, you weren't delayed? No. So you didn't get your free Burger King Impossible Whopper? <laughs> During the holiday season, okay. airport Burger Kings were offering free Impossible Whoppers to delayed uh, passengers. I don't think there is a Burger King in the PDX airport. 
Portland's a lot hipper than that, David. I've been to that airport. It's a great airport. Yeah, they have a. They don't have a Burger King. They have a Pendleton kiosk. Yeah. Uh, um, in fact, I think my uh, my umbrella here is a Pendleton umbrella. That's a very snazzy umbrella. Which I did not get at the Portland airport. Yeah. I obsessed over it at the Portland <laughs> airport, and my wife sure. took notice and got it for me for Christmas uh, last year. Um, Portland also has a tiny little movie theater in the, yep. in the airport. Oh, that's fun. I've yeah. never been. It's always seems to be closed when I go through. Uh, yeah, I didn't go either, but it's a real um, drag. Uh, yeah, it is a nice airport. It's great. And you can get to all the restaurants no matter what terminal you're in. Oh, that's good. That's yeah. pretty key. That's good. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's up there. It's no uh, um, Minneapolis-St. Paul, which is maybe my favorite airport. <laughs> that's a lot of airport. Yeah. I've, I've been to that airport many times because yeah, Jen's family is in Minnesota. And yeah. uh yeah, I enjoy it. It's yeah. a, it's a nice airport. They I don't know if it's I haven't checked, but at one point I I had clearly tweeted about my love for MSP so much that the airport's official Twitter account followed me. <laughs> 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 I don't know if they still follow me, but uh, that was a that was a proud day. All right, well we're not here to talk about airports. What? I mean, we uh, could. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I I don't know. I don't know what's on your list. Yeah, you're not the boss of me, David. <laughs> uh, let's get into it, shall we? Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know what? You take the wheel, Scott, and you you decide uh, how you want to do this. All right. Well, uh, leap right in. You want to do honorable mentions. You yeah. want to do an opening well, statement. You, whatever. Okay. It's all up to you. Clearly, I mean, those are some ideas that you can. <laughs> I'm just going to go now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, following last year's, actually, I think several years before, where Tyler always asked me my least favorite film at the end of the episode. Right after we try to end on a positive note, yeah. Uh, yeah decide to think of that ahead of time. Um, that's like good. That's good. Because best. when I ask at the end of the episode, you'll now have an answer ready. No, thank you. No, I'm uh, saying it sounds like Tyler's years of conditioning finally paid off. Yeah. Well, last year you guys suggested I do what you guys do, which is worst overrated, underrated and some honorable mentions. Oh, okay. So I've prepared. I'm really those. excited because as we're like, uh, um, literally like two minutes ago, I was thinking like, damn, I should have asked him to like format it the way we do. And I already had that's way great. ahead. Yeah. A yeah. year ago. Um, so yeah, I saw 141 movies that came out in 2019. Uh, there are 20 or so I intended and desired to see and just missed out on and countless others. I'm sure I never even tried to see that. Uh, was that Netflix anime movie? Like I lost my body or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's suddenly a thing. It was never on my list, <laughs> but anyway, I missed you that. Know you can still watch it. Well, no, now the year's over for me. I know I'm you're sitting your here thing recording. Is, yeah. I, I, I shouldn't. My work here is done. I know. I but shouldn't I've, make fun of, cause I've like talk about like a weird movie like rules yeah. and rituals i've got all kinds that's just not one that i share with you well yeah i mean like but even if i could watch it like it's not gonna have any effect on this episode yeah but you it, could have it. A, it could still have an effect on your bp submission that though. is true uh yeah have you seen five animated films this year no <laughs> neither have i yeah i, I think you i think you would like klaus quite a i've bit. barely seen enough documentaries i've uh yeah uh I, i've been in my in my critics groups i've been uh Really out there swinging for Abominable and, <laughs> and Toy Nobody Story cares. 4 and Frozen 2. Because those are the only ones I've seen. Yeah, I like Toy Story 4, actually. So. Uh, Toy Story 4 was fun. Yeah, yeah it's fun. I, we both liked it better than Tyler did, I think. Most, most people did. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> I'd say about 98% of people liked it more than I did. And then I saw Weathering with You, but that's a 2019 movie by my rules. Right. It doesn't come out here for a Nobody few else weeks. cares. <laughs> All right. Um, so on the topic of worst... Uh, it's always fun having Scott here because you don't feel any hesitance to say the stuff I've been wanting to say for years, well, or you at least say it in a, in a way that in a tone wait, that I me? wish I could say. Yeah. 
You <laughs> I know. What is I know. this like? <laughs> I didn't realize there was some like uh, uh, facade of like kindness and geniality you were putting on. So oh. this is you holding back? Yeah. Watch out. <laughs> Good lord. Maybe for the one thousandth episode, you guys can really let loose. Yeah. Like. Well, no, I don't have anything to let loose. Like I, you, you know, I mean, I haven't talked about your heritage or any of the <laughs> stuff that's in my mind all the time. My heritage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. It's pretty rough. Your um, least favorite so film. So on the topic of worst, uh, I don't like to pick on the most incompetent movies of the year because... It's not fun. Anybody, yeah. It's not fun, and anyone can be incompetent. That's not exceptional. What's exceptional is extreme competence applied to the wrong purpose. Okay. Uh, so I discarded movies like Cats and Lucy in the Sky, which they just make all the wrong choices throughout the movie. Nothing interesting there. Uh, Bombshell came close because it kind of excuses Fox News, but it's also very incompetent. Yeah. Uh, I, weirdly, I liked it more than you. I disagree with the first part. I kind of agree with the incompetence, <laughs> but with acceptability. Okay. Uh, so I came to the conclusion that the most competent movie uh, that still uh, extremely sucks is probably either the King or Jojo rabbit. So I'm going to go with Jojo rabbit, even though I knew that's what you're going to say, but the King, I actually sat through and not for one moment was I ever engaged with Jojo. There was at least a moment of hope and maybe that made it all the worse. Uh, I I can see that because it's, uh, it's a movie about the evils of Nazism in which all the Nazis are basically pretty friendly. Uh, Mm -hmm. all the evils take place off screen, uh, we don't have to actually deal with it. Every Nazi we meet, except notably for the schoolyard bullies, uh, which are just schoolyard bullies, uh, all the Nazis are pretty, uh, pretty kind to people. And uh, that sucks. I feel like with bad St- call. I feel like with Stephen Merchant, like in that moment, I think because that's inherently a tense situation, like his kindness made him seem more evil to me, but he wasn't evil. He was, and he was as little incompetent. It's like yeah. either he's, he's more of a character out of like Brazil, like yeah. just so and off screen. It's clear that the Nazis are doing a lot of damage. You sure. know, uh, they kill him pretty significant character and they seem to have this whole operation, but every Nazi we see just seems like a bumbling idiot. No, the two don't, uh, go hand in hand. Uh, and this is not a funny movie. And its tonal shifts don't work at all. And I don't understand why anybody anywhere likes it. But they're welcome to their taste. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on all of that. <laughs> and I Going actually, the king. I, I, w- yeah. I was going to, I actually want to, <laughs> but I, I want to hear about the king. <laughs> so I, did you it, see the king? No, I'm just saying <laughs> it's like, so bad. Netflix is really setting a, a template here. Yeah. Okay. Late every year, release a movie. Okay. With the word king in the title. That's a medieval action or historical. Oh yeah, I didn't see the one last. Directed year. by so uh, by a director whose initials who's a David M. director. I can't remember who directed the King. David McKenzie did Outlaw King. Right, and David Michaud. Yeah, whom I have liked in the past. That's the thing is I, I was liked, like uh, the Rover. Yeah, I mm-hmm. really like the Rover. So I was like, he's doing the kind of pseudo Shakespeare thing. Turns out he doesn't understand Shakespeare at all. Uh, certainly not to use the language, but even thematically, um, and can't replace it with any kind of interesting drama. I mean, I had to see this at a screening, so I was stuck there for two hours. I couldn't mm. escape like most Netflix viewers yeah. can. Uh, and Did not, you see looking? No, I missed it. That's yeah, not great. Yeah. But it sounded fun. Uh, well, I mean, people had a lot of fun with the fact that uh, Chris Pine's penis is in it. Yeah. I don't know if Timothy Chalamet's penis is in it. I mean, it's nah. technically that- in, in all of his movies, but, <laughs> you know... <laughs> 
I don't know if that's Some true. More hidden than others. In so far as like it's not going anywhere, it just is not. <laughs> I mean, uh, but we're talking about so like overt. a two-dimensional image. So sure. just because something's like, look, if I'm holding a bouquet of roses <laughs> behind my back right, right now, which I am, I mean, the roses are in the room. True. But if you take a picture of me with a right. bouquet of roses behind my back, the roses are not in the picture. Yeah, it might as well, they might as well not exist. Yeah. So that's so you saying Chris Pine until, acquired unless, a penis. Unless, <laughs> uh, this is true of every character in movies. Unless you see their genitals, they don't have them. <laughs> All right. Martin Scorsese did say why. cinema is a matter of what's uh, in the frame and what is out of the frame. Yeah. So uh, in a sense, you are right. I don't know why I'm so turned on right now. <laughs> um, okay. All right. On to overrated. Uh, similarly... I'm not going here, you know, with like the worst film that's mysteriously getting praised, like a bombshell or a decent film that's mysteriously counted among the best. Uh, but to me, I think uh, overrated since it, it tends to be like, I don't want to say that people are like liking a film too much that I think is all right. Uh, there are plenty of films I think are all right that I just don't like as much as other people. And it's like, it's not worth picking on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided to pick a film that I think is being misunderstood as valuable and which I think is simply not valuable. Uh, and that is 1917, um, which is essentially an um, action hero movie, but about a soldier who's supposed to be vulnerable. And we just never it's it, like any video game or action movie. I never got a sense of danger, even though characters do die, sometimes significant ones. Um, every scene felt like it had to be juiced in some way, you know, and there was no fragility to any of the characters. And even like as soon as they get introduced to Colin Firth and the like near the very beginning, I was going to say the opening scene, but practically the whole movie is the opening scene because it's the one shot thing. Uh, as soon as Colin Firth gets injured, like the way he's lit even looks like a video game cutscene. <laughs> and from that point on, like they go to like the tunnel sequence was like Indiana Jones escape thing. There's a plane crash soon after he has that cliff jump when he's escaping the enemy fire. There's that whole like sniper attack thing, mm. which is even shot like a video game, kind of the way the camera ducks down behind the thing. It just all felt very fake and phony and kind of this continued myth uh, that goes on in especially American films about like war and the soldier of one kind of thing. And this whole like, invincible army fellow who can just withstand everything because he believes in the cause so much. And I, I don't feel like that's truthful to the nature of war. And I don't feel like it's uh, treating the audience with any real respect or treating uh, past wars with any real respect. The idea of fragility, I think is very important in uh, depicting war. And there's none of that here. It's just a pure action movie. Um, I think where it, where it, most shows that is when they're walking along and just seeing like the things that have been killed and not, and I say things not merely people, which is what you would expect, but also animals, this idea that like war just doesn't discriminate. All it does is destroy, it destroys anything that is alive. Like moment images like that, I find very impactful. And some of the action sequence sequences are just the way they're put together. I'm invested, but only for technical reasons, like, and I think George McKay does a fine job. Yeah, as, no, the uh, acting's the, the good. Lead actor, um, but yeah, like, even though I officially gave it like a, a a fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, that was mostly because there's an ambition to it, and it pulls and it pulls it off to a certain extent. But I, I do think that they're really 
that Sam Mendes really thinks he's doing something. Yeah. And And it's like, I don't think you are. And you can tell he was inspired by Dunkirk, which is a much, much better film. In part, I realized... I think he was inspired by Gravity. It reminds me of Gravity a lot. Yeah, for sure. And I think in practice, it feels more like Gravity, but I feel like Dunkirk was kind of the basis there. Oh, sure. And increasingly, I think, like, war movies just have to be ensembles, because then you get like the collective effort side of it. You don't get the sense that one character has to see everything. Well, and that's the thing is like the, the tension. It's like, are there, I guess spoilers for 1917. There are two guys. So, you know that they've got some options. They only have one or two options about how to really show the stakes. Right. And if they take advantage of that, that means other elements of tension go away. Right. As far as life and death. Yeah. And I remember just, just thinking, saying, like, yeah. I know we all saw the movie like a month and a half ago. I, yeah. it it's only been out like three days. I, so I do forget that. We should yeah. be careful. Yeah. Um, well, we can move on to underrated, uh, which uh, similarly, like, there are films in my top ten that I think are incredibly underrated. But you know, I'm not going to go with a great film here, um, or even a runner-up. I want to go with a film that shows inspiration and promise, but. Uh, has been kind of unfairly dismissed. And so I'm going with the last film I saw for this calendar year, uh, and that's Sophia Tuchel's Black Christmas, uh, which kind of came at the tail end of a year for a ton of like feminist rallying cry movies that were, to varying degrees, successful in that effort. Um, this one felt like the most kind of self-aware in that mission, uh, that it was setting out to do so. You know, the opening scene, not quite the opening scene, but the first real scene uh, is this college professor lecturing about the importance of the white male canon and lecturing against uh, the women who are trying to take him down for it. And whereas that scene kind of feels like an over, uh, overcooked parody thing, they go all the way with it and made the guy a full-on Satanist. <laughs> if you're going to go after that crowd, you might as well go all the way with it. Um, in addition to that, it's just really sharply directed uh, and has a good sense of humor about itself, and the scares are really effective. Uh, yeah, I think it's a really solid movie that's been kind of unfairly dismissed uh, for ex- pretty much exactly what it's trying to do, which is to be kind of a teen thriller teacher moment. So, yeah. All right. Okay. So we're into honorable mentions. Yeah. And similarly for honorable mentions, I wanted to pick a group of films as opposed to just doing my 11 through 15, Mm -hmm. um, whatever that might look like. Uh, So since I couldn't find any room for any big studio movies in here, I wanted to highlight five studio movies because I felt like it was actually a really strong year for studio movies. Um, And I felt kind of bad about not getting any in there. So most obviously, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think is spectacular. Mm even if, and this is a subject we can dive into if you guys want to, or we can just leave it as is. Uh, I, I I said this as soon as I walked out of the screening, and I've felt the way all year about it, that I agree with most of the things that have been said against it. Um, I do think there's several respects in which it's very childish. Um, I think there's... I don't think it takes seriously what it does with hi- history and uh, with the real people involved therein. Um, but I think that same sort of impulsiveness that's throughout the film is also what leads to its best moments um that it's not overly thought through that it feels like came kind of from a gut reaction to a scenario i Uh, think that's that is a very much the way i would describe it as i would describe a a number of movies that i would say are imperfect but you just can tell that there's this story that tarantino right it's not it's not fully developed it's not fully cooked but he needs to tell it like there's a real urgency which is weird for a film that is quite <laughs> that is so lackadaisical yeah. uh but um 
but it, it really just feels like there's a year, there was a yearning desire to tell this story yeah, this sure. way. Yeah. And, uh, it was kind of, it's, it's kind of invigorating when I think about it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I also want to mention us, which I got to on my, our halfway episode, uh, Ang Lee's Gemini man was a th- thrilling experience. I wrote about it for the site. You can read more about it there. Uh, Ford V Ferrari also one I saw twice in which, uh, I just had a blast with both times. And the one that caught me most off guard, uh, cause I expected to full and hate it was a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Um, which I think is brilliantly directed and yeah. kind of like old school Douglas Sirk way of taking, frankly, a screenplay that I think is really problematic. I'm mean, not like problematic, like socially, but like dramatically, um, and investing in it, all the feeling that it's trying to get out and in doing so getting out that feeling. All yeah, right. I would, uh, yep. I, I think I mentioned Mariel Heller for my individual achievement, like for a director, because I think the script is fine, yeah. but I think she finds stuff within it that I don't know if they intended and she, and they didn't pull it off, but she could, or she actually finds stuff that they didn't even write into it. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I was not expecting much of that movie. Sorry, David, you were going to say something. I was, I was going to say something shitty about 4V Ferrari. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, you're welcome to. It's just, in between the parts that are good, it's just so boring. Really? I, I find it so boring. What part did you find boring, for Mostly any time Josh Lucas is on screen. And I have liked Josh Lucas as an actor before. Right. I just hate that. I hate that 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 uh convention of the antagonist who just like he just hates the <laughs> he just hates the good guy so much and you don't really like there's a bit of an explanation like in the first scene that christian bale like insults him or insults the ford car but like it just he's just the he, I, I just don't buy he's so over the top in his villainy uh, i mean the whole movie is pretty being, over the top but i don't think he hates the protagonist as much as he just hates the idea that he wouldn't be right about something. And I think that's a trend you see in especially American business positions in general all the time is they don't want new ideas because they're not their ideas, you know? Oh yeah. And yeah, so no, hates, I like that idea. He hates the threat, whatever that's coming from. Yeah. But, uh, I, I will go all the way back to an argument, uh, discussion. I'll say sure that you and I had about, uh, Nightcrawler movie. I like, and then you don't <laughs> is that, just liking or agreeing with what it's trying to say about the corporate world is not the same as it being enjoyable. Oh, I, I found no, that an enjoyable, but that was kind of your argument against it. No, but. that's, I, that's really fine. You were saying that you didn't see a reason behind his motivation. I and yeah. I think it's there, whether or not you think that it's expressed well as a whole other subject. I guess that's the issue. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I didn't find it. And especially when you got Tracy less performance as, as, Henry Ford Jr. Who's, right. He's great. Uh, Tracy Letts is, is fantastic in the yeah, movie. Sure. Uh, in he's fact, given much more to play than Josh Lucas in yeah. Josh Lucas's defense. <laughs> uh, in I, fact, I think the, my, my, my favorite scene in the movie uh, is a Tracy Letts. Tracy Letts' big scene, if you know what I'm talking sure. about. Uh, yeah, it's maybe my favorite scene in the movie. This is going to sound uh, mean. Okay. I've not seen Ford v. Ferrari, but uh, in reviews that I've read and in what other people have said, like, the Josh Lucas character, like, and when I hear about it, I just think, oh, so the Josh Lucas role, even before he was cast, <laughs> yeah, like he tends to be cast first as that type of asshole. And also, when I think of him, it sounds as, like somebody never saw Glory Road. Uh, fair enough. Uh, sorry, I'm still thinking of Undertow, um, <laughs> but uh, but I do I think of him as as actually kind of a big actor, which is not necessarily a crime. Um, but I will say that, like, I, I appreciate. 
Josh Lucas in the right role, but I do think that there's just something about his instincts as an actor that are inherently two-dimensional. Um, I feel like he often plays the essence of his character, uh, but in a way that I don't necessarily respond to, which is why he works so well for Undertow, because that character in true Night of the Hunter fashion <laughs> is meant to be like the essence of threat, the essence of, of things. Um, I've not know. seen Undertow, but I have to mention uh, The Mend, which I have to mention anytime Josh Lucas comes up, because it's a film nobody saw, but he's exceptionally good in it. Okay, that's good. Um, I'm yeah, rooting I, for him. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I, I've not dismissed him. Well, I, I will always love him in uh, American Psycho, but that's who he's, sure. he's playing he's an very asshole much that guy. Yeah. in that. Um, and you can count on me where he plays right. an asshole. Yeah. Um, I, can't, I can't remember what uh, Christian Bale says um, in uh, something about apartheid or whatever. And Josh Lucas is like, oh, right. Patrick's dating someone from the ACLU. <laughs> 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 okay, I love it. Um, okay, uh, we can we're into the top ten. Into and the top ten proper. And before we start, I will say, yeah. listeners, uh, if you go to battleshippretension.com, you can also check out Scott's article about the top ten of the decade. Top thirty-one, in fact. Top thirty-one. Yeah, I, I mean, forget. my top ten is in there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, mathematically, it would have to be. Yeah, I'm just saying, uh, I did rank it. It's not just like yes, yes, big collection. You have to um, guess that. But yeah, so if you're curious, because we did an episode about our uh, tops 10, and then we posted uh, the list themselves. So if you're curious what Scott had to say about that, so you can you can go to battleshippretension.com. I appreciate the plug, because I meant to mention that and then made no space for it in my little structure here. Um, I do want to just make the briefest mention of three movies that should be in the top 10. There's just only 10 slots, uh, which are Uncut Gems, Diane, and Portrait of Lady on Fire, all of which I adored, mm. um, but just, you know, you only get 10 slots. Um, okay, so my number 10 is uh, Jean-Luc Godard's The Image Book, um, which I didn't expect to make my top 10 until, uh, frankly, until Anya's Varda died recently, and I've been thinking about Godard a lot lately because he's the last living, certainly major new wave director, but possibly only living middle uh, new wave director. Um, and this is really a continuation of so many of the things he's been concerned with throughout his entire career, the extent to which an image uh, can convey anything about a person or about a certain condition and the responsibility they're in. Uh, the back half of the movie is sort of about the way that uh, images, especially Hollywood images, have failed the Middle East and kind of made it in this one big morass of uh, violence and wealth and whatever else. Uh, and most of the rest of the movie is just establishing kind of the various power images have had over history. At least that's the extent to which I can kind of grok what he's going for. Um, as with most Godard, it's pretty uh, incomprehensible a lot of the time. And there's a certain thrill in that, um, in not always knowing why you're watching something and not always knowing if there's a specific reason for it. There's this effect that he does. So most of the movie is composed of clips from films and newscasts or... Uh, there's some documentary footage, but for the most part, it's kind of existing clips. And there's this weird effect that happens sometimes where the image will like start out squeezing and it'll kind of snap into the correct aspects ratio. Uh, and at first, I thought that was like a trick to like I don't know, kind of guide us into it or call our attention to it or something. It turns out it's just what happens with the editing software he's using. <laughs> there's no reason for it. There, they probably could have found a way to fix it, but it just happens to be that way. Um, and there's also the fact that Godard has talked about that he just has to keep making films financially in order to stay afloat. You know, not every project is necessarily going to be this pure work of passion, which you would think a guy at his stage of his career could kind of coast and only work when he wants to. I mean, he's in the late 80s. Uh, so he, at a certain point, you've got to wonder how much 
work is left in him. Um, and while I can understand that these qualities might not be terribly exciting for most people, I think if a filmmaker means as much to you as Godard certainly means to me, in spite of his considerable personal deficiencies, um, that's going yeah, to... Yeah, sounds like he's not much of a, not much of a saver. Sounds like he's a spender. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, actually, um, I'm reading Richard Burry's biography on him, and he talks repeatedly about how John Goddard just spends without considering the cost at all. Oh, okay. um, so there you go. Um, but yeah, I, I don't like reject the idea that this is, is uh, or that I love the film so much because it's a John Goddard movie, and I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. Um, I kind of balk at the notion that we're supposed to discount uh, whoever made the film from our consideration, especially for a guy like Godard, whose films are so intertwined within one another. He even does, uses clips of his own movies in this movie. Uh, the history is very much embedded in there. Yeah, I, I, I loved it too, um, especially, and I was very glad to have loved it since you and I weren't on the same page about his last right. effort. Um, but uh, yeah, I... Um, I was very moved by it in in ways, some ways different than you. Some ways, I felt like his personal deficiencies came across in the movie as well. Oh yeah, I don't uh, want to discount that either. I mean, much like Tarantino, he is inevitably himself. Yeah, it, it, yeah, but um, yeah, I definitely it was a very. Uh, I found it to be a very powerful uh, cinematic experience. I know I contrarianly. <laughs> Uh, as a contrarian, contrarily, contrarily, I don't know. As a contrarian, I sometimes uh, discount the theatrical experience or people who insist on the theatrical experience as being elitist. But I am glad that I saw the image book in a theater. Yeah, I think uh, just reading reviews, most people must have seen it on links because one of the things that stood out to me most immediately is the sound design is so dynamic and uses like the complete surround sound experience like there's a lot of narration in the film some of it's overlapping and you'll get different voices coming out of different speakers yeah um it's a really exciting thing to watch yeah i um both of our reviews are on the site scott i think your review is better because i think you oh thanks you think about godard uh better than i do well but i think about I, him I a lot more than most people yeah. <laughs> uh, i believe i did mention the sound design in yeah you too all right uh moving on or? yeah sure uh to number nine uh which is the most depressing film i saw all year and i'm not going to try to be terribly uplifting about it, which is uh, Pella Kegerman and Hugo uh, Lilia's uh, Aniara, which is uh, in a year of depressing space films. Uh, I'll also <laughs> mention Ad Astra and High Life were exceptionally good and deserve to be on anyone's top 10 list. Uh, this was certainly the most depressing. I talked about it in the mid-year episode, but just to remind people, uh, it's about, there's kind of this like cruise line spaceship. It's very much like a cruise ship. It has shopping malls and I think like gambling and like enough for people to keep people entertained for weeks uh, that travels between earth and Mars is supposed to get to Mars within three weeks. So it's enough time for people to kind of party a little bit. Mm. Um, but it's mainly just a transport to get them to Mars. Uh, and shortly into their journey, uh, they get hit by some space debris or a meteor or some science fiction thing. Um, and they get knocked off course and all their fuel spills out into space. Um, so they're just left free floating. The captain tells the passengers that, they in two years you know they have enough supplies you know they have food on board and all that kind of stuff that but within two years they'll reach a planet and they can kind of slingshot around it get back on course or at least head towards a livable destination that's not true though so they just float and float and float and the movie just keeps going on and on and on with all the uh terror and uncertainty and uh, spurts of misguided joy that come with that. Um, 
And the film, I think, is very much, even though it's based on a poem that was written in 1956, um, I wonder if uh, the poem was responding to maybe the nuclear crisis or just the sense of doom that was pervading then, uh, but now feels kind of inevitably tied to the climate crisis, um, in which, much like the people on board, we're given the illusion of safety and we latch onto that as opposed to trying to find a way to sustain ourselves. Um, through any longer course. Uh, the protagonist of the film is unnamed, but she's just named after her job, which is some made-up title. But she runs this kind of uh, cinema, essentially, which um, allows the passengers to experience life on Earth, at least as it was. We get the sense that Earth is not in great shape anymore uh, for any number of sci-fi-ish reasons. Uh, and so they, people can visit fields or go to concerts or whatever else. And as they continue to float, more and more people become addicted to this thing and eventually start worshiping this thing uh, because it becomes their only means of kind of mental escape. Uh, because they can't seem to focus on developing a sustainable food source, they just are plowing through all the resources on this ship. Uh, no matter what the future may hold, they keep living their lives in every other respect. They keep having children on this ship, even though, even well past the point where they know that there's no safety coming. They, they've passed the two-year mark, and they have, haven't slingshot and aren't going to slingshot anytime soon. Um, and it, the film just really expresses a lot of the doubts and uncertainties I'm having about the future in general, and which have come to the fore in the past year, as a lot of my friends and family start having children. And I was talking about this with a friend who's recently had a, a son, and she was like, yeah, these are all on my mind, too. And ultimately, we do have to keep living our lives. Um, but it's, I think in the meantime, it's important that we make art that wrestles with the uncertainty that we're living with. Uh, and even though it left me depressed for a week after and well into the year, every time I've thought about the film, I can't deny the considerable effect it has. Um, and if you are steeled for it, I highly recommend you check it out. That sounds so wonderful. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'll really enjoy it. It's on VOD. Not- it's been on VOD since okay. it came out. Yeah, I really highly recommend it. What was the, what was the title again? Uh, Aniara, A-N-I-A-R-A. Okay. I'll also, for listeners' sake, be posting uh, my top ten list in right. article form. So uh, if you forget the title and remember it later, there you go. Um, my number eight is a much more uphifting film in its own way. It is uh, Olivier Seuss's nonfiction, um, which is on here for a number of reasons, but to start with, it is just exceptionally funny. Even in the dumbest jokes, everyone mentions the Force Awakens gag. It's the <laughs> easiest joke in the world, but it totally pulls it off. I saw it with an audience two times, and both times I laughed, and everyone in the audience lost it, because it's... I believe David has explained what the gag is. Can you, please, can you remind me? <laughs> I don't think we should. I think oh, we should okay. keep it... I guess, yeah, and explaining it just makes it sound as dumb as it is, but oh, okay. it's just like the timing of it, something yeah. makes it work very well. Okay. But it's also, I mean, it's an ongoing thing. Yeah, for sure. As is, and it's tied to the other repeated movie reference, which is Mikhail Haneke's The White Ribbon. Right. <laughs> and the, the fact that those two movies both keep coming up. Right. That's uh, Is very funny. Yeah, for sure. Um, Asayas has, for most of his career, I'd say at this point, been concerned with, uh, the uh, with with characters feel like kind of a step out of time um even in this films that take place in the past like uh, something in the air uh his protagonists want to have lived through may 1968 and even though they're stuck in the early 70s keep trying to find a w- way to have their own revolution uh carlos was kind of about a guy who wants to live in the mold of other revolutionaries um more recently personal shopper was about a young woman who's 
almost literally plagued by her smartphone. Um, and this is about a series of people who are constantly debating the role that technology is playing in art in their lives, and especially around uh, eBooks and Twitter and the way cinema's uh, experienced now and all these things that I think people who are engaged in artistic circles are constantly talking about. Um, but it's not just a diatribe about that. It's very much about the way that we form these opinions and the way that um, those sort of viewpoints become expressed and become more expressed more urgently depending on where we are in our lives, uh, who we're dating, who we're married to, who we're... In this in case, uh, every character is sleeping around with someone else who we're having affairs with. Um, all these people influence the importance of each character's opinions. Uh, there's a lot of detail about the characters that's not entirely explained and kind of left in the background for us to intuit. But the cast is so exceptional that you're fine with these mysteries because you sense that there's kind of a purpose behind them. You know, Julia Binoche is... One of those actresses who I've loved for years and years and yet continues to surprise and amaze me with each film. She never seems to make a wrong step and always seems to be challenging herself, which is, I think, rare for oh, anyone of her age. I was going to say a woman of her age, but not just a woman thing. It's actually, I think, probably mostly a man thing. Um, but actors at a certain point tend to start coasting. I never get the sense that she has started. Um, and she's also supported very well by uh, Vincent McCang, whose name I can never say correctly, um, but who has become a really exceptional presence in French cinema. Which one's he? Uh, he's the kind of balding author, author. guy. Okay, yeah. yeah, he's funny. Um, and uh, the woman who plays his wife, Nora Hamzawi, who's a political consultant who uh, couldn't be more different than her husband. <laughs> she's just, like exceptionally driven. He's exceptionally lackadaisical. Um, and the way they spar is incredibly amusing to me as someone who's married to someone who on the surface is quite different from him. Um, I recognize a lot of ourselves in that, even if, you know, to my knowledge, no one's cheating on each other um, in my life. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that dynamic, I think, is uh, really always very fun to explore when opposites kind of uh, end up together. Um, so, yeah, it, the movie's actually on Hulu now. Uh, I really recommend people check it out. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's one of the. Uh, I, I feel like every year, this is something that goes on with me and my uh, my my good friend Sean, who I used to do a TV podcast with. We met through being big comedy fans. We met at right. going to comedy shows, and we always talk about like we always ask each other what are the funniest movies of the year, and a lot of times they're not. Uh, I mean, I do think like uh, I don't know if I'm in the minority here, but I, I thought Longshot was really funny as far as a movie that's actually like trying to be an old fashioned, right. not an old fashioned, but like a mainstream American Hollywood comedy. Longshot was actually pretty funny, but most of the time, uh, and I like Booksmart too. But most of the time, uh, like if you ask me what's the funniest movie of 2019, I would probably say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is yeah. probably the funniest movie. But nonfiction is definitely up there. Um, and also uh, uh, to go back to what you were saying about it not being a diatribe, that's what I like about it uh, as well because it's it's a, more of a dialectic. Yeah. It's because it offers differing points of view uh, uh, on this subject, and some of which, again, like you were saying with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I don't always agree with the movie or what the characters at least are right. are, are are saying. Um, uh, and the other thing I'll say, just going off of something you said. Uh, I, maybe it's because I spend a lot of time around you and your wife. I see a lot of similarities between okay. you, um, but maybe it's because I've gotten to know you guys well. Probably because it's that, and you got to know us as a couple. I right. think people who knew us separately, uh, it's different. But anyway, especially people I grew up with are very surprised. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Though now I wonder what people think of 
If, if me and Natalie are different, I don't know. Yo, I, I, I'm shocked you've lasted this long. <laughs> <laughs> but that's true of any woman with me. Like, why, yeah, why would true. she stick yes. around? Yes, you're very noncommittal. Except for Battleship Retention, 13 <laughs> years. Here we go. No, it's not about the, the thing that I think, but I'm like... Uh, I'm sorry, I mispronounced insufferable. That's what, I, that's what I am, because I have, like, I'm, I'm five minutes from being actually OCD, and, like, sometimes there are times when she's like, why are you being secretive about what you had for lunch? And I'll be like... <laughs> It would take me 10 minutes to tell you why I can't come out and tell you what I had for lunch today. I'm insane. Like, that does sound insane. Oh, yeah. Or be like, you know, I, like. What did you uh, have for lunch today, David? Uh, what did I have for lunch today? None of your business. No, I had Chipotle today. <laughs> um, uh, but, um, but that was actually a whole thing. I don't even need to go into it. I, was, I had planned on having one lunch, and I wasn't able to. I went to Chipotle instead. But also be like, no, I have to, like, no. I know it's warm outside. I'll open the windows. I just have to do it in a certain order. Like there's, <laughs> I'm crazy. So yeah, I am. An, I am insufferable. I'm surprised anyone has stuck with me. Now, David, you and I have known each other long enough that you actually knew me, knew me before I started dating Jen. So what about you? What do you think? Do you think, uh, do you think we have a shot? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, like, uh, I think, I, I think Jen uh, is what you need. <laughs> I'd say that's about right. Yes. Yeah. Not the most so. sterling endorsement I've ever heard. But <laughs> it's like, I mean, clearly you guys don't like each other, but <laughs> but you are now shackled through need. No, because I think about when I say about the things about me that are insufferable, I don't know why anyone would, would stick with me. When I think I, I, I would not get a second. I would not go on a second date with someone who's as picky an eater as you are. Oh, and sure. the fact that honestly, like you could be the greatest person in the world. I'd be, it would be disqualifying. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that Jenny, who is not a picky eater, but uh, she's vegan now. So between the right, two of us, yeah. restaurants are tough. Uh, but we found We found a way to make it work. But uh, she's just, I think she's a saint sometimes. Cause I remember one time at your old, old place, um, on, oh, on Wix- Wix- Oh yeah. Uh, we were going to be like recording all day. And she was like, uh, hey, David, I'm going to Chipotle, and then I'm going to stop by Burger King to get something for Tyler. Do you want something for Burger King? And I was like, no, I want something from Chipotle. <laughs> but also, why would you, like, that's, my wife would not do that. My wife would be like, I'm going to Chipotle. And I'd be like, would you mind stopping by Burger King? Yeah, I'm going to Chipotle. They have food there. Well, you know what? Here's the deal. There are times when, in fact, frequently when I will go to Chipotle solely for Jen with no expectation of getting anything for myself before or after. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'm a nice person. Yeah, I'm I'm worth it. <laughs> OK, uh, so that was number eight. Right? That was number eight. OK, uh, number, number seven, seven is Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. All right. Um, which I saw back in July and loved and then kind of went through that ride of being like, well, everyone really loves it. Do I really love it that much? And then the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, it's actually really that good. And I put it on last night for the first time. Put it on. I didn't download the movie. I got a screener, folks. Settle down. Uh, I put it on for the first time since July last night and was just overwhelmed by how thoroughly and immediately uh, involving it is, despite the fact that it takes like forever to essentially get to what it's about, Um, which I'm not going to give away here because I don't think it's... But while it's getting there, it's still tremendously fun. That's what I'm saying. Like, it... Whatever twists and turns happen with it, and I'm kind of amazed the extent to which people are imagining twists and turns. Like most people who haven't seen it, still assume it's a horror movie, which it really isn't. Um, hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I certainly thought the same. And there's kind of a part where you think it could turn into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, like I'm fine with keeping all those things a secret, even though it's been out for a few months now, because I 
I think there's so much else going on in the movie and even beyond the politics of it, which I think are really well considered and really mm-hmm. well expressed. Uh, just the aesthetic experience of it is so thrilling second to second. Every shot is intensely worked out and yet it feels like they're finding it in the moment. You know, it seems to be responding naturally to the environment, although it's all very carefully orchestrated. It's in many ways, I think of it in exactly the opposite way that I think of once upon a time in Hollywood. Like this one is so meticulous, so planned out, but often with movies that are that, I find them a little soulless. Yeah, this totally. one is not that. It's not at, at all. all. See, maybe I'll play, because I'm not going to pretend it's not one of the best movies of the year. It's one of the okay. best movies of the year. But yeah. I am. I think I am, maybe I do need to watch it again, because I think I'm kind of where you were, Scott, of like doubting. And I think it is that meticulousness that makes me doubt, uh, or makes me feel like it, it's not, I feel like Parasite, again, one of the greatest movies of the year, <laughs> is still not as deeply felt as my favorite Bang Drew Ho movies, which are like Memories of Murder and The Host. I still haven't seen Memories of Murder. I, I don't like the host as much as other people. I love Mother, though. And Mother is the one that's like, well, maybe it's not as good as Mother, but. Yeah. Um, I, I, I never saw Mother yeah. uh, either. So, um, but yeah, I am. Uh, maybe I need to watch it again because I am. I find myself remembering like what Tyler's talking about, the the the, the way the camera, the, the, the framing and the way the camera moves and the editing. And I and I when I think about it, I admire it as a, uh, a technical and aesthetic achievement. And I maybe I need to watch it again to to feel it like I yeah did I, I mean I, I definitely had that thought myself and especially rewatching it like I said it feels like every camera movement is just responding to what's going on in the action and is like taking some inspiration from the characters and not like guiding mm-hmm. them towards any purpose and I think one I can kind of allude to this without giving anything away but for those who see it it's a very memorable moment in the film there's a certain kick down the stairs mm-hmm. uh that like I almost laughed out loud at because the way the camera whips around to it, it does feel like it's just like, we're like, Whoa, what's going on over here? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, the thing I've come to liken it to is I had this friend in uh, high school who was one of those guys who could solve a Rubik's cube in like 30 seconds or two, 20 seconds or something. And this felt like riding the edge of a Rubik's cube where it feels like you're stuck in what seems like chaos and you're slowly getting worked towards, uh, rigid structure but every second is like whoa where are we going where are we going here and yeah. you keep getting confronted by new and strange uh, objects along the way yeah from a from a storytelling standpoint a lot because that's I mean people understandably talk about it from a technical standpoint and it's winning all kinds of screenplay yeah. awards but it's just it's structure is it shouldn't work yeah uh, <laughs> but it like to me because I, I lecture about like the three act structure and all that, and I don't I don't hold that up as like the 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 gold standard of structure or anything, but uh, it tends to work. And if sure. a, and movies that veer away from it, it's just like all right, you you need to know where where you're headed uh, for the most part. Yeah. And with this one, again, it's just like he's going to do what feels absolutely right for these characters. The tone of the film. Uh, is derived from the emotional state of the characters at every at every uh, every moment along the way, I think, and so their experience to me that yeah, like I don't think of the film as as cold or clinical at all. Like, no. despite it being shot in a way that often is, uh, I feel like I'm connected with them at all at all times, uh, for good or ill. Like even when characters are doing things i'm like oh what are you doing keep your fucking eyes on the road you're gonna get an accident and you're gonna get fired um but uh 
well, I guess you could also die in the accident, but still, if you don't, you're definitely going to get fired. And so, yeah, I, it's just a, it's just such a fully realized film on every possible level. Yeah. Um, And there's also things in it that are just lively and weird. Like the part that's in the trailer that everyone keeps pointing to where she's like running through her biography with a Jessica. uh Like, I don't know why she's doing the hand movement at all. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, mnemonic devices. I guess, yeah, yeah. but it, it's like weird and catching and exciting. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, my number seven. Uh, number six is definitely the film that I most enjoyed watching in the theater, which I saw over three days, which is uh, Mariano Illuminas. Uh, uh, man, how do I say that? Venus? Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, La Flor, uh, which is a 14-hour film that... Those of us who have seen it keep having to convince people that it's actually a lot of fun because it is. It is a lot of fun. And and look, like I've said before, <laughs> yes, 15 hours with intermission, <laughs> 14 hours. You keep talking it down to a slightly less ridiculous length. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, it's, like, it's like 12 hours and 50 minutes of actual. You don't have to watch the end titles. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's not that long is what I'm saying. Sure. Uh, it is that <laughs> it's long. It's just over half a day. It, yeah. it yeah. is that long, but it's well worth it. And it's kind of the closest I've felt in years to the excitement of getting caught up in any kind of episodic thing. Like I, I used to enjoy binge watching TV and now I just don't. And uh, this was the first time in years that I've been like, I cannot wait to see what happens next in this uh, in part because it keeps changing shape. You know, it's made up of six episodes. Uh, most of them are not complete stories, so you really never know what you're getting into at any given second. And even those that are complete stories go in really wild, weird directions, so it's completely unpredictable moment to moment. And it's just such a font of uh, creativity and inspiration. Uh, the filmmaker said that he just wanted, he saw the actresses that star in most of the films. Uh, it's this theater collective known as uh, Peel de Lava. Uh, and he just saw a production there, just wanted to make six films with them so he's like let's find a way to make six films together but let's not wait let's just do it all right now Uh, and they're like uh okay they didn't expect it to take 10 years uh but there you have it Um, but who does it's true you know and more than just being like an ode to storytelling or whatever uh or an ode to creativity i do think david what you hit on uh which i heard on some episode recently about it being kind of uh about desire to a certain extent uh, how over the course of the film yeah. he you do feel like he does come to desire these women or at least started that way um, but I'd even take it a step further where I think he wants to be a part of their collective and he wants to like be within their creative unit and what you sense over the course of the film is the limits of that where mm-hmm. they start resisting him where yeah. they start forming their own sense of what the project is um, and where that frustration builds but also where he comes to i think accept that certainly i think by the end of the fourth episode there's a real acceptance of that and then the sixth is this kind of just very peaceful very loving uh kind of ode to what they've created together um so yeah it's far more than the sum of its parts even though those parts i've been saying if you want to just watch an episode here or there you totally could because they're all super awesome on their yeah. own although they're not always they're not like easily digestible because one of them is like six hours long. Sure, <laughs> the, the, that's the third one, right? The spy yeah, one. Yeah, is, uh, yeah. Is yeah, nearly ha- like it's like half the movie is the spy one. Yeah, which was my favorite. When I saw it theatrically, that was an entire day. It was just watching that one. <laughs> yeah, because that, that seems the thing I've mentioned before is, um, and I think if you were to go back. I don't recommend doing this. Do the better things with your life. But if you were to go back and listen to every episode of Battleship Pretension, <laughs> you would kind of like 
Didn't the listener try to do that? Well, at, when we were at 365 right. yeah. episodes. Yeah, yeah. So, so, <laughs> That was half a, yeah. half our lifetime ago. Yeah, a couple um, listeners tried to do it. Uh, one of them broke real fast. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then the other lasted a while and then wrote a, a lengthy blog about how he couldn't keep up. <laughs> he couldn't keep up and then it, he was starting to like question his life choices and said, <laughs> well, I can think of one yeah, uh, yeah. that was a bad call. But I feel like I've always wanted to, my entire life, I never wanted to be like, you know, oh, I'm done with school. I have a degree. Like I'm done learning about things. Like I've always yeah. wanted to to every day like learn something new and change and not be the same person I was the day before. And I feel like you can hear you can hear me develop as a film viewer. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've that that I that this journey of Battleship Retention has been for me is getting further and further away from the the assumption that we tend to grow up in watching Hollywood movies that cinema exists to tell stories, uh, which is a great thing that it can do. Sure. But uh, that's one of the things that I love about LaFleur is how moment to moment it seems very plot driven. Like the, the spy one in particular is such, it, like a spy movie is a movie that depends on plots and double crosses and stuff like that. Yeah. But and here it has like a nesting narrative where they keep going to flashbacks to tell their origins. And, but yeah, it really feels like a, almost like a free, it's like, it's like a free association, but also heavily plotted where it's like, there is an overall arching plot, but then there'll be, yeah, a, an aside or a flashback that would almost be sustain a feature length. Yeah. Like totally. the, the one about the two, uh, spies like the two the two assassins who keep getting paired up together and kind of fall in love but can't admit that yeah. to anyone because they're that's like it's like 85 minutes of the yeah. movie. that's a movie <laughs> in itself um and uh I, I so when yeah when you say that the floor was is a lot of fl- a lot of fun i almost said a lot of fun um <laughs> uh eat a lot of flan and then watch the floor um no uh that's what i'm talking about that it, that it's it's always surprising it's hitting certain i think pleasure center like buttons about plot driven movies without also saying these, uh, you know, just because you didn't like the last season of game of Thrones doesn't mean you, <laughs> uh, I, I shouldn't say game of Thrones because I did quit that show. The lost is the one I always point mm-hmm. to like, um, doesn't mean that the blind alleys and the, and the little character episodes of lost weren't worth it because you didn't like the way it ended. And so, this is a movie where four of the stories, you don't even get to find out how it ends. Right. Uh, and you're just left to see you. This was fun, right? You don't have to find out what happens to the lady spies or to the, the, the singer songwriter couple or, or the mummy or the, whatever the fourth one is, the car in the tree. Yeah. Yeah. And all that stuff. You don't have to find out. It was fun just watching it. And I, I find that a very, um, what's what I'm looking for? Uh, invigorating. No, like, uh, it makes me feel, it's validating. Validating. Yeah, totally. And yet it's between like teaching people who have just by, as, as we all did when we were 19, like have a very limited and maybe even narrow view of what movies are and what they can be. Um, and then just writing for various audiences, dealing with Christian audiences, not and that kind of thing. Um, Cause yeah, I think I myself have changed to such an extent that, I, yeah, I I recognize that film can tell a story in a way that makes it makes that story inherently cinematic, and you can't really separate the two. But at the same time, I find myself embracing more movies that may ha, might have a really good script and all that, but it's not a story driven thing. Uh, 
but I do find that people are just, they, they really adhere to this idea. It's like just the number of people that, that say with confidence that like, it's like, it's all about telling a good story. It's like, you hear that well, about the, the Oscars every year. Sure. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. well, the story ones, sure. That yeah. is what, that is what it's all about, yeah. but they're not all that. And so, and so then I can think of any number of people that, the idea of one quote unquote story after another that doesn't resolve, they, that would blow their minds <laughs> and infuriate them. Yeah. And as time has gone on, it was something that I've come to tell my students is like, if you like everyone goes into a movie with an expectation, it could be an expectation of this particular movie or movies in general. And the minute a movie does something that you don't expect, unless it does it in a way that that you absolutely love, chances are you're just going to be thrown a little bit. And the minute people are thrown they view that view that as a mark against. And so as I've, as I've started to tell my students, like the minute you have a negative feeling towards what the filmmaker is doing, you feel like you wish they had done something different. You now have a responsibility to ask because it's a film. It's a film class. (laughs) Your responsibility is to ask, why did they do that? Since I, since the quote, I keep saying quote unquote, since the, hypothetically normal thing or the expected thing would be to go left. Why did they go right? Did they do it because they're just dumb? <laughs> did they do it to spite you? Sometimes the answer is yes. My <laughs> uh, Um But like, you know, it's, and, and that's the thing is I feel like so many people are inclined to sit back with their arms folded and say, all right, you need to entertain at me. Um, and so, and I will determine whether or not you've done it correctly, that the idea of really engaging, uh, with a film and asking why a director could have done something, uh, is not really in the way people talk about movies. And I, I realize that's really maybe cynical, maybe a little, a little pessimistic of me, but it's definitely something that I I feel like come to realize. I mean, you say cynical, pessimistic, it's. I I struggle with being a snob. Sure, <laughs> like a there's snob. that too. Especially this time of year, we just got through the holidays. You're you're spending time with not uh, people outside your normal yeah. group of friends, people who are like nice people who are like, hey, you like movies? What have you seen recently? And it feels so hard sometimes to like try to like because I'm not going to tell you know my father-in-law that he should check out the floor. <laughs> sure, he wouldn't know how to like. <laughs> I don't know how he'd even see it, and like I don't know how I would recommend it to someone. He likes good movies, but I don't know. Uh, I, I do struggle sometimes with am I a snob? And there are times, you know, often when I'm talking with the two of you, where like I don't see as much as many movies as, as you guys do, and so uh, invariably I feel like oh my tastes are so mainstream. <laughs> and then, and then I post my top ten of the decade in some kind of social media thing, and people aggressively haven't heard of them, uh, oh, like, wow. and and take and start to judge me. So, somehow they take the fact that they haven't heard of them as itself a right. criticism, and that's when I'm just like, okay, yeah, like. I feel like you don't get more snobbish than to like the mo- like movies that people haven't heard of and say I'm too mainstream. Uh, so anyway, okay, okay, that was moving it. on. I like every once in a while we give Scott a break from talking. <laughs> no, yeah. I appreciate it, especially because I feel like I'm coming down with something and my throat's a little scratchy. God damn, um, I swear to God. You know, <laughs> you always do this, but I took actually uh, some wisdom from you that you said on the podcast once, which is that like 
people come into work and are always just like, don't get me sick. Don't get me sick. But it's like, people are going to get sick. You're yeah, going to catch you're not. I'm, yeah. I'm just, Sorry. I'm I, just, I, I, I do love that character. Though. <laughs> God damn it. Just like <laughs> immediately furious. All right. All right. Uh, so these next three are sort of a trilogy of purgatorial movies, which is a vibe I really like. Um, <laughs> of people just trapped and not sure where they're going to go or afraid of where they're going to go next or whatever else. Uh, so we'll start with number five, uh, second Korean film, Hong Sang Su's Hotel by the River, uh, which is about a poet who's staying at a hotel because uh, the hotel owner likes the poetry and was just like, hey, come stay at my hotel, write a little. Um, off screen, the hotel owner is secretly getting frustrated that the poet won't hang out with him. Uh, but we never see that hotel owner. We actually don't see, I think, most of the characters that you would normally interact with. There's only about six people in the movie, which kind of adds to its purgatorial feel. There's just these six people drifting around a hotel. Uh, two of them sleep for most of the movie. Uh, it snows sometimes. People go out walking, they have conversations. It, as much as Hong Sang Su's movies aren't usually about much, this one is aggressively not really about much. Um, the poet, for some reason, senses he's about to die, so he's invited his two grown sons to come spend some time with him. And their interactions are at first uh, kind of very tense, and the father is kind of standoffish and not really engaging. But then it has the sweetest scene I've ever seen in my entire life, where the father out of nowhere produces two stuffed animals, decides they look like his sons, and it's like, this one is you, and this one is you, and he gives them to him, and they share the most beautiful moment of just enjoying these stuffed animals and writing down their names in Chinese characters and just kind of reminiscing about their lives, even though they don't all seem to really get along that well, but they just kind of are taking some sweet joy in this small moment. Uh, it's probably my favorite scene of the year. It's uh, a really nice uh, slice of life. Uh, in the midst of a movie that's I think largely, I mean, like most Hong Sing Su movies, it's pretty funny, but it's also quite chilly, both literally, uh, like I said, it, it snows kind of mysteriously while some characters are taking a nap. Uh, the characters seem to kind of slip in and out of physical spaces. They seem to be sitting next to each other and then suddenly aren't. Um, but the film never really calls attention to that. It just kind of dwells in the uncertainty of the moment they're in. Uh, the other characters, uh, one is played by Kim Min-hee. Uh, she, like most Kim Min-hee characters in Hong Sang-soo movies, has recently broken up with her married boyfriend, uh, which really happened to her in real life. She was dating the married Hong Sang-soo, and they broke up. Um, and so she's just at the hotel, kind of depressed. Uh, she invites someone who might be her friend or might be her sister, and they kind of just hang out and sleep through most of the day and kind of try to bond in the midst of all this. And it's like most of Hong's movies is not a film that I can entirely put my finger on. I mentioned this with Claire's camera last year. It's not a film I can entirely explain, but the effect of it is uh, very strange and beguiling and uh, consistently quite funny in the meantime. Yeah. That's when you said purgatorial, I did not expect you to say hotel by the river because purgatorial doesn't sound funny. And hotel by, river, by the river is a movie that I think of as a comedy, um, but that's it, part of the ways. That's part of why I'm glad that AFI fest is always shown in Hong movies because when you see them with a the big audience, you realize just how funny they are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also saw this with a much sparser crowd at the music hall with like five people and it wasn't quite as funny then. Oh, that's interesting. Um, but yeah, it is a super funny movie. Um, yeah, interesting. I, remember, I think of purgatorial as, almost inherently funny. Like <laughs> I think of like no exit and American sure. Buffalo oh, okay. and that sort of okay. thing. Um, but yeah, I guess, uh, cause I was, I, I am thinking you mentioned AFI fest cause the year before or two years ago, um, at night alone on alone at night of the beach. I always get it wrong. Uh, alone at night of the beach, something like on that. the beach at night alone, on a beach at night alone. We saw that 
at LA Film Fest, yeah. RIP, and it was like an eleven fifteen p.m. screening. Yeah, it was uh, not that lively. No, um, I, I mean I kind of fall asleep, <laughs> fell asleep at that. So, uh, well, that's a, I, I feel like the movies you, movies you can sometimes that's, there are certain directors I think it's yeah, okay to true. experience movies especially Hotel by the River would be a great one because it has characters they, napping the yeah they're constantly time. falling asleep <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah it's very funny um, I mean you mentioned the uh, the stuffed animals the part I always mention is when the the sons and the father get separated and the sons are sitting at the restaurant yes <laughs> and then they realize the father's outside and they're like knocking on the window and yelling at each other the window and then they're like go in the door and the camera just moves just a little bit and you realize just like the door a foot. right there yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of outside the frame comedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I really like that movie, but okay. also this is uh, so many movies you're picking are 2018 movies in my, uh, in my, especially this, like you saw that in 2018. I know I was yeah, there. But it came out in 2019. I also saw it theatrically in 2019. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I think my number four qualifies as a 2019 movie, uh, and has a very similar plot to hotel by the river, which is Iris X's Frankie. Um, it is, as with Hotel by the River, Isabel Huppert, uh, in this case, she knows she's dying, and so she invites uh, various friends and family to, oh, I forgot to write down the country, but it's, it's mo- Portugal. It's Portugal. The most gorgeous mountain retreat you've ever seen in your gosh yeah. down life. Yeah. Uh, I can't it's not Lisbon. It's no, one it's of the some other cities. No, far off city. Um, but it's just, that far off. Portugal's not very big. Well, I don't know anything about <laughs> Portugal. <laughs> it seems very remote. They seem uh, very separated. Um, Anyway, so yeah, uh, so she gathers them all around and has this kind of ideal of setting up her son with, uh, a f- she plays an actress in the film, much a very Isabel Huppera's character, um, and she tries to set her son up with, uh, is it a wardrobe or hair and makeup person? Uh, yeah, Marissa Tomei is a yeah, hair and makeup. Yeah. yeah. Um, Porto is the city. Porto. Um so that's her ideal, but she didn't expect Maris Tomei would bring along a significant other in the form of Greg Kinnear. Um, and also there are her husband played by Brendan Gleeson, her ex-husband played by, I think Pascal Gregory. Does that sound right? No, some, some guy. Um, and various other, there's their son-in-law, no son, daughter, her daughter-in-law, her husband's daughter, right? Yeah. That's yeah. And, and her family. Yeah. She's got a family, and then, but then, yeah, the son is solo, right? But yes. He's divorced? I can't remember. Yeah, there's a lot of the family connections that I can't quite remember. I wanted to see this film again, but it came and went from theaters, unfortunately. Um, and yeah, just the whole effect of the movie is much like Hotel by the River, not entirely explicable just by explaining what it's about. Um, it's beautifully shot. Every shot feels like, honestly, a painting. It feels like an uh, Edward Hopper painting, almost. Um, just the way the colors interact and the way that people are positioned in the frame and the acting style, which is just a touch unreal. Um, it's, I think, a real, uh, not quite a total departure for Iris X, but a, I think a significant next step where he's made these kind of realist dramas the past few years. Uh, they've been very involving, and uh, Love is Strange especially almost made my top ten list that year. But here he's going for something a little stranger aesthetically, and... An experience that, I, again, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's very much just about the way that people are trying to take stock of their lives and take stock of the way they're seen by other people um, and what they might leave behind. Uh, the daughter-in-law we mentioned is in the process of getting divorced from her husband, which uh, is very fraught uh, in practical terms. To her sex's credit, even though it takes place in this unbelievable mountain resort that must be 
uh, fortune to spend a night in. Uh, money is very much at the fore, um, both in the daughter's case, and they have this tour guide who is this very knowledgeable, seemingly world guy, but he has this moment where he's like, yeah, I'm just kind of here because my family needs the money, um, and mm-hmm. this is kind of just the job I could take. And so it has this real complication underneath and kind of builds to this climax that doesn't settle anything that's going on. In fact, it, throughout the film, things have only gotten more complicated, though not terribly dramatically, just kind of quietly so. Um, but nevertheless, the climax feels very uh, cathartic in a way um, and feels like Isabel Hooper's characters come to some sort of understanding about herself, even if we can't quite put a finger on, you know, one of the last things we see is her being observed by another character. We don't really know what he's gained from that. We don't really know what she, she's lost from that. Um, but we sense that somehow there's been some transformation and yeah, again, can't totally explain it, but I was practically in tears by the end. I just found it an incredibly beautiful experience. Yeah. I really liked it too. Um, it definitely, I think does a good job. It might've, when did it come out? It's like September, October, October. Okay. So I had spent, late August, early September on a, not anywhere near this lavish, but on a large, like extended family vacation. Yeah. And I was, uh, so I was, it was because that was a front of mind for me. I, I was I, thinking about how well it captures that feeling of being sort of like, uh, uh vacation with your family, like extended family. It's like, it's a vacation from your life, but it also was like, a uh, what's what I'm looking for? Like, a uh, uh, Pot boiler, but not, not the, that's not the word I'm looking for. Um, uh, anyway, it just feels, there's a lot of potential conflict kind of bubbling yeah, up because you have nowhere to go, yeah. but with yeah. your, your family, and also the way that um, uh, vacation time exists out of time. Like when I'm in my normal, like I wake up, I like do my morning shit, I go to work, and right. I, then I'm here doing the podcast, and it feels like this has all happened pretty quickly. Whereas when you're on vacation, you can have like three or four whole different experiences in one day. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so there are parts of the movie that I was like, is this still the same day as it was earlier? And that sometimes maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but, uh, that's not the, not the point. Yeah. Anyway, uh, and it goes, I can't think of the name word I was looking for. (laughs) That's okay. I mean, it goes without saying at this point, but I think Marissa Tomei gives one of the best performances of the year. She's really incredible in it. And Greg Kinnear, man, what, like, yeah, given sometimes it's funny, like given how we, come to know like how someone gets famous mm. it's surprising like he's such a great actor but he's like the guy from talk soup right <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's been so long since i've thought of him that way yeah. oh, maybe I don't, that's my problem yeah i don't yeah. think of him that way at all yeah. autofocus uh, took care of that for me yeah. <laughs> i guess that's true yeah all right all right uh number three capping off the purgatorial trilogy is christian petzl's transit uh which i also talked about in our mid-year kind of wrap up um which is based on a 1942 novel, kind of a standard thriller of the time where these characters are trapped in a kind of port city. They're trying to get out. They need to use Casablanca's terms, letters as transit. I can't remember what the movie calls them. And I haven't read the novel. Um, but something like that, some sort of documents in order to get out. And they're all kind of interacting and just kind of passing the time until they can kind of figure out a way to get out of there. Um, the film doesn't update the setting, but it doesn't, set it in the period either the uh locations and uh some of the attire and certainly the vehicles are all very modern there's no cell phones and people take trains a lot more than i think they do in real life even in europe um but it 
it doesn't really exist in any specific time. And it feels very much like these people are kind of pulled in from the past. It feels like they're almost ghosts living their lives over again for us, um, having already done it many times. And uh, it's essentially about this guy who accidentally assumes the identity of a writer, um, tries to clear it up, tries to kind of do the right thing along the way, but can't quite uh, line things up just right. He's played by Franz uh, Rogowski, who's also in Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life, briefly. Uh, and he, his performance here is really exceptional. It's a really tough role to pull off because we don't know much about the guy as he really is. We don't know much about the person he's pretending to be. Um, so we just have to get a sense of this inherent decency that we hope will be enough for the scenario, but which uh, is kind of uh, coming up against a lot in this kind of unspecified authoritarian state. And the people he interacts with are all characters in their own right. Uh, he especially keeps coming across this woman played by Paula Beer, um, who may or may not pertain to uh, the past that he's uh, accidentally assumed. And, it's a tough movie to talk about because these people just keep kind of slipping in and out of each other's lives. The whole film feels very slippery as though kind of each shot is not quite long enough. Each scene is not quite long enough because the characters are not quite there. They're constantly kind of moving in and out of spaces or trying to move in and out of spaces. Um, yeah, it's, I like Christian Petzl's work before, but this is a huge step up for him and I'm really excited to see if he can keep going with it. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm, it's the one film from this year, I think, that made my de- best of the decade list uh, mm. and one of the films that I think will really stand the test of time. I haven't right. seen this one. I have a I screener know. at home. It, oh, they sent you a screener. Look at you. Uh, I, well, I think... Um, is it Music Box Films? Yeah. Music Box Films sent me the DVD to oh, nice. review, but I didn't ask for it. And uh, generally, <laughs> reviews of newer stuff doesn't tend to do very well right. on the website, so I kind of don't prioritize it. No, well, you should uh, still watch it. And I prioritize the stuff that I've asked for because then right. you know, those companies start saying, hey, you made us send you a Blu-ray. Where's you asked for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I never got around to watching, to watching Transit. Well, you, your part of the year is still going. But that's a 2018 movie by my, ah, by my right. dumb, yeah. dumb definition. Well, just give, give it to me. Yeah, give okay. it out. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, getting out of purgatory into uh, some people's definition of hell. Um, going with uh, number two, Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir, um, which I keep hearing, including from people in the audience I saw it with, that uh, this movie is deeply unrelatable. And I greatly envy them um it's about a woman a young woman who's in film school in the 80s in the uk uh who falls into a relationship with uh i think slightly older man um who works for the foreign department he's a very old-fashioned kind of guy uh keeps talking about how much he likes paul Powell and Pressburger and all these kind of old-fashioned things he dresses like he's from the 60s he seems to present himself as this man of integrity a uh, kind of a man of distinction um, and who secretly unbeknownst to her and I think for most of the movie unbeknownst to us uh, is battling a heroin addiction um, which inevitably kind of comes to the fore as the movie goes on but and which damages his life and certainly her life and which never quite becomes a deal breaker for her um, even though there's any number of times in which she yes should have jumped off the bus um, but I think for anyone, I, I've never personally dealt with anyone who's been addicted to drugs. And from what I understand from those who have, it's a harrowing, horrible experience. 
um, and very tough to get through. But I think if you've ever had a strong attachment to someone who isn't as attached to you and who brings a lot of pain into your life, um, but w- whom you can't quite let go of, I think there's a kernel that you can kind of latch onto and understand. That was certainly the case for me. I, Scott, I'm sorry. I, I can't <laughs> help it. It's, you know. Um, uh, Honor Swinton Byrne plays the main character, Julie, um, and I just completely felt for her the entire time and completely understood where she was coming from and trying to tell herself that what uh, her boyfriend, Anthony, played by, magnificently by Tom Burke, I think is really the best male performance I saw all year. Um, she keeps trying to convince herself that what he's telling her is true, that he doesn't mean to do the things he does, that uh, they're not really who he is, that uh, the things she thinks are happening aren't really happening any number of things, any number of excuses that he tries to get by on. Um, she just keeps trying to tell herself that that's the way things are. And even when she thinks she can break from him, she can't totally, he just has this certain hold on her. And I, I mean, again, if people are lucky enough to not, uh, have these people in their lives in the past, then bully for them. But, uh, for those who have, I, I think it's immediately identifiable in some fashion. And it, it's just a really exceptionally well-made movie. It's gorgeously shot. Um, every frame is really well-considered. I'd only seen one of Johan Hogg's movies before, but I found it kind of overly well-considered. But every shot was just kind of uh, set up for the sake of setting itself up. But the talent that comes from that is really well-applied here. There are scenes set in like bedrooms that feel like they're on alien spaceships. Um, there's just every shot seems to draw something else out of the story than what's there on the page. Um, even through the kind of minimalist aesthetics, not a lot of close-ups, mostly kind of wide shots. But seeing the way the characters behave uh, between each other tells us so much about where they're coming from. And I really, uh, yeah, love the movie. I loved it too. Um, there are a few, very few close-ups that are handheld shots that I. Um, uh, have my own uh, hypotheses about what those mean, why those brief breaks from the... Rigid. Well, do tell. Uh, um, I I think within the reality of the, of the world the movie is set in, most of what we're seeing is how it actually happened. And mm-hmm. that's why we're able to understand before she does that this guy's you know, not, not good for her life. Right. And, but occasionally there are the shots that are the close-ups of them together or of her with like, she's got like a stuffed animal in the bed or something like that. Or when they're saying goodbye and he actually said, I love you or whatever. I think that's, those are supposed to be almost more from her memory than okay. from the world within the movie. It like that, that's the brief moments we get to actually see what he's like to her and how he makes her feel. That was that was my uh, hypothesis on on the 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 occasional use of handheld close up. Um, but speaking of uh, Tom Burke, I didn't hear that same uh, 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 criticism that you did about it being unrelatable. But one, but that reminded me of a criticism I did hear about it, and I've heard about other things this year, like uh, like Adam Driver. Uh, there are certain men <laughs> in this world who I think are so unwilling to be attracted to a woman who isn't traditionally attractive. Oh, sure. They have a hard time understanding why men who aren't traditionally attractive can be hot or charming or whatever. Yeah. And Mm. so, uh, Tom Burke is an odd guy, you know, but, uh, he was recently cast and understandably cast as Orson Welles. Oh yeah. Um, 
but if you if you don't get his charms, then you're not you're not willing to look right. Uh, and also, if you don't get why Adam Adam Driver's hot to to certain people, you're not looking the right <laughs> right things. Like it's obvious. Yeah, look at his hair. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I get uh, it. But yeah, so it's uh, I, I feel like I, I don't want to shortchange Honor Swinton Byrne, who's who's amazing <laughs> in the movie, as is uh, her mother Tilda Swinton as yeah. the character's mother. But uh, Tom Burke is really fantastic. Yeah, for uh, sure in the movie. And apparently, is there still a sequel coming? Yeah, as far as I know. But Robert Pattinson's not going to be in it? Right. That's too bad. He was supposed to be the Tom Burke character in this, which I'm really glad didn't happen, even though I love Robert Pattinson. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad Tom Burke was in it. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, on to number one. Uh, inevitably, it's a hidden life. Um, I, I actually... Now, is this... I seem to recall either last year or the year before your favorite movie of the year was a Terrence Malick. Yeah, Song to Song, Song in 2017. Song. Okay. Um, and Tree of Life in 2011. Okay. Um, productive decade for Malick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you've got some harsh opinions on To the Wonder and Night of Cups. <laughs> They're not Un- harsh. Uncharitable. <laughs> those movies. Uh, Night of Cups was the only one that wasn't in my top ten, and I regret it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I actually did struggle with the order of especially the top three. Um but this is ultimately where I landed today. It might be different tomorrow. I couldn't say, but uh, to a certain extent, Terrence Malick just kind of feels like a home base touchstone for me. Uh, I saw the new world when it came out when I was 19 and it had a really, really profound effect on me and continues to, but it's just one of those formative experiences that uh, are kind of inextricable. And because he keeps making very Terrence Malick movies uh, to his uh, detractors consternation, um, <laughs> I, I'm just going to keep loving them just as much because they feel kind of like a piece of that essential um, aesthetic and emotional experience that is become so formative to me. And certainly this one has any number of quote unquote objective qualities that you can point to as being really exceptionally well done. Most of which we got into in the AFI uh, wrap up episode and which I still completely stand by, you know, it takes this scenario of a guy who, is standing up to the Nazis by refusing to join the army and accepting without all the consequences come to it and takes that really seriously. It explores the battle between um, the inner battle he experiences between wanting to stand by his ideals and really needing to stand by his ideals uh, and the desire he has to just return to his family and have a life that he is perfectly entitled to. And Malik takes that dynamic that conflict completely seriously to the point when a character when his wife finally says to him you know i accept whichever choice you make you she could be talking about either one um either that she won't think less of him for giving up now or that she'll accept that he needs to essentially die for what he believes in and but it's not even really that it i don't think the character and this is part of the brilliance of it is that a lot of people come away with different ideal ideas about what the character's after here. I don't think the character feels like he's standing up for something. Um, the people in the movie repeatedly tell him that his death will have no effect whatsoever. And they're mostly right. People didn't hear about his story until decades after it happened. Um, but he just, for whatever reason, can't cede. This is a part of who he is and he's going to live that out. Uh, whatever comes of it. And, the film is just as gorgeously wrought as anything Malik's done. Despite working with a completely new production team, uh, a new cinematographer, new production design. Actually, I was looking this up before the episode started. He, the whole 
production and art costume department kind of worked on blockbusters before this. Like they were involved in like uh, White House Down and uh, the most recent Robin Hood movie, not the Ridley Scott one, the Taron Edgerton oh, one that oh, nobody yeah. cared about. Uh, so I don't know why he pulled this particular crew together, but it really worked out. I mean, the whole film is uh, gorgeously designed and expressed. There's the farm seems to be a working farm. And like I talked about in the AFI episode, the chores that they get into seem to express their kind of inner turmoil turmoil and are more than just showing their day to day. They really get at what the characters do because for Malik, the physical is just as important as anything else. And the way the voiceover interacts with that, it really gets to the consistent Malik ideal that, you know, we're not just what we're doing at any given moment. We're not just what we're thinking at any given moment. You know, all these things are constantly interacting and battling, for both our attention and for the definition of who we are. And there's no point at which that can be completely resolved. And to his credit, I don't think he does try to resolve uh, his character's decision within the movie. Uh, yeah, I think we'll, uh, in the next month or so, we'll probably be talking right. about Hidden Life a bit more. <laughs> yeah, probably quite a bit more. <laughs> did I, t- I know I told that when Angie was on, when, we did the, when I did the TIFF r- wrap-up, did we talk about the... Because the, the Q&A after the TIFF screening that I was at, uh, obviously Terrence Milk wasn't there, right. but August Steele and Valerie Packner were, and um, Valerie Packner was apparently cast almost immediately, and then there was a long process before they landed on August Steele, and so mm. she uh, you know, was testing with a bunch of different actors, and, and she told the story, uh, or maybe August Steele told the story that uh, his audition wasn't given any sides or lines or anything. They just in character peeled an apple together. <laughs> and it's so perfect. And yeah, so totally. Malik and it fits the movie. Yeah. All right. This was great. That's that. Yeah. All right. It's a great list. I feel like this is a really good year. I, I, I say really that to some extent every year. And I'll also say, I mean, these are 10 films from at least eight different countries. Um, 10 totally different distributors too. So it's a really varied year too. And a lot of, uh, great stuff is coming from all corners. All right. Uh, well, thank you. Yeah, Scott. of course. Uh, you can find us at battleshipretention.com. You can find plenty of uh, so, some of the reviews uh, that Scott, I, I can't remember how many of those you reviewed for us. Uh, but uh, Couple. Uh, Gemini Man, well, that was not one of your top ten, though. Uh, uh, I got the image book. I got, uh, that's right. I think, nonfiction. Did you? I thought I did nonfiction. Uh, maybe I did it for Criterion Cast. Okay. Um, uh, well, you can find reviews. We all we all wrote about a hidden life. Yeah, we all wrote about a hidden <laughs> yeah. life. That's true. Um, so yeah, you can find reviews by Scott or, or others uh, of most of those movies uh, at our website. Not of Aniara. Yeah. Uh, couldn't get anyone to go to the 10 a.m. on a Tuesday screening <laughs> of, of Aniara, unfortunately. All right. Uh, that's all at BattleshipRetention.com. You can follow us. Uh, you can email us at David at BattleshipRetention.com or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at DavyPretension. Um, check out the Patreon. Uh, this week we did all, we, we sort of did a, a catch up on the award season as it stands so far. We, yeah. we started talking about our fantasy awards teams, but mostly it's, it's just uh, an overview of uh, how the award season has yeah. gone. Who's trending up? Who's trending down? Who's hot? Who's it's, not? It's one of my favorite things to talk about. And we had to cut it off at 45 <laughs> minutes because I probably could have gone longer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's on the Patreon uh, this week. Tyler, you are on Twitter at Tyler pretension. That's right. Anything else to plug? Well, I'm also on Twitter at more lessons, which is the official Twitter of my other website and podcast, more than one lesson.com. Uh, and this week, um, I think I might've said this last week as well, but, uh, this week, the, Oh shoot. 
That's right. Sorry. Because I do it every two weeks and the holidays kind of screwed it up. uh, I don't actually remember what's coming uh, out when, but, um, uh, the most recent episode that is currently available is about, uh, the Safdie brothers uncut gems with the companion film, the killing of a Chinese bookie, uh, Coming up, coming up in the future. Um, I don't know exactly when, um, but just uh, some episodes to look forward to. Um, uh, let's see, uh, the Irishman with uh, the companion film, The Godfather Part Two. Um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with the companion film, uh, The Last Laugh, and Bad Times at the El Royale with the companion film, Pulp Fiction. So that's the that's the plan right now. I don't know in what order those are going to come out, but uh, be on the lookout for that. Scott, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow and at Battleship Pretension and Criterion Cast. At Criterion Cast, we recently did the best of the year for Criterion releases. Um, and we'll soon, we're planning to do a best of the decade episode about nice. Criterion releases. So. Oh. See if that comes together. Did you talk about the All About Eve packaging that I hated so much? <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, I don't own that release, so I couldn't tell you. It's so annoying. <laughs> it's such a great movie. I think they actually repackaged that. I uh, read somewhere. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did not like it. It, ripped, right. it ripped the booklet. Hey, I'm on sorry. On both sides. Uh, or pulled the staples out. Anyway. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 